Hello and welcome to the Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. Continuing our little series on going through the Bible from beginning to end and uh, we're going to read just a couple of verses from the Gospel of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, in our previous signpost we explored the idea that Jesus was the living word, God in the flesh. And one of the things that we learn from the New Testament is that this living word speaks. Jesus was probably in his early 30s when he began his public ministry of teaching and preaching and much of what he taught in words and in actions has been preserved in the four Gospels that traditionally open the New Testament. His teaching is considered as radical today as it was in the first century. His teaching is not intended to simply be admired debated, agreed or disagreed with. Rather, on every page of the Gospels, his teaching is aimed at calling us to live radically, a radically different way of life. Jesus calls us to a life that is contrary to the social norms with which we are most familiar, and certainly contrary to the normal expectations and ideas about what constitutes a good life in modern Western democracies. For example, he calls his followers to a life of humility and self-sacrificial love for others, including those whom we would normally think of as being the enemy, to be welcoming and show hospitality to the stranger. It's a radically uncompromising way of life, and even today it presents the greatest challenge to the lives of individuals or societies that the world has ever known. At the very heart of Jesus' teaching was the idea of the Kingdom of God, especially the idea that the Kingdom of God has broken into human history because in Jesus' own person the Kingdom had come. The Kingdom of God is not yet here in all its fullness, but it has begun, to, it has entered into the human history and begun to overthrow the kingdoms of the world. Even Jesus called to people to repent was given in the context of the arrival of the kingdom. Uh, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And his life and teaching, in his life and teaching, he shared what that kingdom life looked like. Since the reformation of the church in the 16th century, sermons have, uh, for quite good reasons, occupied a place of central importance within the worship service. It is the word of God that directs how we should live to please God. The psalmist tells us that storing up in our hearts will keep us from sin. Paul tells us that God's word is the word of life. Yet when you read the Gospels, it's noticeable that Jesus never actually preaches a sermon, at least not in the way that we would be familiar with today. <clears throat> As one author notes, if Jesus had gone to train to be a preacher uh, today, he would have begun his sermon with a joke, worked through three points and ended with a punchy quote. What he did instead was to teach people through parables, deceptively simple stories using everyday themes and ideas, often with a sting in the tail and always designed to make his audience think and respond. 
He's taught through dialogue with his opponents, through question and answer, always challenging people to see things differently. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, he challenges the conventional wisdom with a, a repeated formula, you have heard it said, but I say. The story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, for example, challenges us to redefine our understanding of those whom we accept. The Jews of Jesus' day hated Samaritans with a passion and the feeling was quite mutual. And yet in the story of the Good Samaritan, it was a Samaritan who helped a Jew with no thought of reward at his own expense and at great personal risk. 2,000 years later, that story still challenges us to look beyond skin colour, culture, race or creed and to accept unconditionally all human beings because they're made in the image of God, but also to serve them, to be a neighbour to them in the way that the Good Samaritan was to the injured Jew. The message of the Good Samaritan was pretty radical stuff in the first century and provoked strong reactions, and it's no less so today. We perhaps like to think that racism is a declining force in our culture, but in reality it's really just below the surface and it doesn't take very much for it to rise up. For many years, and especially perhaps in the past decade, the British press have fuelled a hatred of foreigners and refugees and asylum seekers by playing on people's fears and prejudices. It doesn't take much to stir up that kind of hatred. And we should note that both Islamophobia and anti-Semitism are also on the rise in the UK today. In fact, in many Western democracies. The teaching of Jesus challenges these attitudes and calls us to a loving acceptance of the other, the stranger and the foreigner. All of those who are in some way different from us. More than that, it calls us to give ourselves sacrificially for them. His simple stories make it clear that hateful, prejudicial attitudes and actions have no place in God's kingdom and therefore no place in the lives of citizens of that kingdom, those who have pledged their allegiance to Jesus as their saving king. Luke 15 goes even further with its stories of the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost son, each one of which is designed to challenge the existing ideas among his audience uh, about the scope and nature of God's love. They show us that God is for all those who are lost, irrespective of race, gender, religion, socioeconomic status, sexuality, whatever it is, even those who we might think of as unacceptable for whatever reason. In such a broken world as ours, many people might be lost indeed, but God goes searching for them just as the characters in those stories search for what they had lost. God's love is greater and bigger than we imagine it to be. The kingdom of God in Jesus' teaching is also wider than we expect it to be, but also as the parable of the sower uh, and others in Matthew 13 suggest, it's also narrower than we might like to think. Some people will reject Jesus' message of the kingdom, just as some seed falls on stony ground. Some will accept it up to a point, but the cares of the world will stifle the impact of the message of the kingdom in their lives. They will have a form of religion, but it will not transform their lives. And others will accept it joyfully and will bear fruit uh, of accepting and living out his teaching. 
but not everyone accepts the message of the kingdom. The kingdom comes with conditions and costs. It's open to everyone, but not everyone enters it. The Sermon on the Mount is among Jesus' best known and most loved teaching, and it's a more straightforward form of teaching, more like what we would think of today as a sermon. It defines the way in which kingdom people live out their lives, and it is uncompromising in the standard it expects from kingdom people. Obedience to that standard will absolutely place us at odds with the world around us. A few years ago, Sunday Telegraph, in the Sunday Telegraph, an author of a report on the integration of religious groups in British society said that Christianity's old-time religion had no place in modern Britain. If the old-time religion refers to the sectarian fundamentalism of the church's past, then the author of that report was right. But the old-time religion of kingdom lifestyle is exactly what our society needs, even if it doesn't realise it. A few years ago, on the BBC Question Time programme, a question was posed as to whether or not the UK was still a Christian country. Personally, I would argue that it never has been, and because there is no such thing as a Christian country. The journalist Matthew Paris, who's not a Christian as far as I know, said that it was not a Christian country any longer and he went on to lay the blame for that on those who profess to be Christians. He said if you read the Gospels and live according to their teaching, then the world would not be in the state that it's in. And he singled out the Sermon on the Mount, in fact. Now, his words echoed the sentiments of Harvard professor Henry Cox, who in the mid-1960s wrote that the church had proven that the gospel was invalid because we had shown by our actions that we didn't believe what we said. In other words, we were not living out what we claimed to believe. He wrote that the church has become so self-focused it no longer participates in God's revolution in the world. In calling the church to shift its focus from itself to the world, he made four critical biblical assertions. Firstly, the world is created, sustained and judged by God. In 1 Samuel it says the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. Secondly, the world is the object of God's love and concern for God so loved the world, John 3.16. And the world is the sphere of God's liberating and renewing activity. It is in the world that God meets with man. And lastly, that the world is the proper location of the Christian life. It's where the Christian is called to be a Christian. The teaching of Jesus calls us to live a kingdom lifestyle in the world, in our home, in our workplace, in our street. That is to say, it, it calls us to live a life lived in obedience to Jesus' teaching in the world. He doesn't call us to preach at the world, to point a moral finger, to tell everyone how bad they are and how they're going to hell, he calls us to live in such a way that our very lives will be a sign, a witness and a foretaste of the kingdom which is already here but not yet in all its fullness. The new standard for living that Jesus sets out is in many respects more difficult than that of the First Testament but it grows out of an inner motivation, a real relationship with God whom we can now call Father through our relationship with the Son. If the Kingdom of God was the core message of Jesus' teaching, then we cannot escape the central implication of that message. 
we can't ignore the fact that Jesus calls his followers to be kingdom people, to live as citizens of the kingdom, people who live under his rule and reign. As Harvey Cox also writes, God's word to man by its very nature cannot be ignored. It comes in such a way that I must answer it or refuse to answer it. God's word says the Bible never returns to him void. It always elicits a response. The crucial question then is if we believe that Jesus, the living word, has spoken, then how are we responding or have we responded to the word that he has spoken? If you think that the way of life that Jesus calls his followers to is impossible, you would be wrong. You'd be right, however, to think that it is costly. Both of these truths are evident in the story of one of the early Anabaptists during the time of the Reformation. The Anabaptists emerged out of the Protestant Reformation and central to their life and practice was the idea that as followers of Jesus they had to live under his rule and reign as citizens of his kingdom, obeying his commands whatever the cost. Uh, one chap called Dirk Willems was arrested for the crime of being an Anabaptist that was actually against the law. But he escaped from prison. And he was as he was escaping, it was winter, and he ran across a frozen river uh, and the guard that was chasing him fell through the ice into the freezing water. So instead of making good his escape, Willems turned and rescued the guard thereby saving his life. Of course, he was promptly re-arrested and was burned at the stake for being an Anabaptist on the 16th of May, 1569. Jesus said, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. And, he, well, Williams and the other Anabaptists took Jesus' words very seriously, even if it seems if it led to their own death. The life that Jesus calls us to live throughout all his teaching and, and his example is not, as some would suggest, an impossible ideal that we'll only attain to when we get to heaven. It is possible now, but it is costly and people reject it because they're not willing to pay the cost. That life is a far cry from our ideas of Christ's self-centeredness. We like to think of Christ as being the centre of the church and of our lives, yet at times we can hardly bear to talk to our other Christians about Jesus, much less sacrifice ourselves on behalf of our enemies in Jesus' name. Yet that's exactly the kind of thing that Jesus asks to do, us to do. Christ-centred living is not simply a matter of placing Jesus at the centre of our theology and doctrine or our worship services. It's also about placing Jesus at the very centre of our lives so that our lives are shaped by him, that are shaped around him. The kingdom has come in his person and we are called to demonstrate that kingdom in the way that we live in the world in response to Jesus and his life and teaching. And in doing so, we will be that sign, that witness, that foretaste of the kingdom that will one day come in all its fullness. And so we come full circle back to this question of, well, if Jesus is the living word, if Jesus speaks the very words of God, if he demonstrates 
what it is to live the life that pleases God, um, then how will we respond to that? Everything that Jesus said in parables, in dialogue, in conversation, in teaching was said with the intention of eliciting a response from his hearers. Now Jesus will not force us to respond in any particular way. How we respond is really up to us. It's our choice. We have the free will to do that. But he does demand a response. We can reject what he says or we can embrace it despite the cost. But we cannot ignore it. In his book Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, when you read the Gospels and you you read the teaching of Jesus, you look at his life and how he lived. Well, you're, you're left really with the fact that we can think what we want to of Jesus, but we can't ignore him. He demands a response. So I encourage you to read the Gospels and get to know Jesus, learn his teaching and respond positively to it. Thanks for listening.